Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery. Fight for liberty. It's ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. I'm Jerea Clark. This week, we're very excited. I am, anyway. I don't know about my buddies here, but we'll find out. To be looking at satire, and specifically sort of political and war satire. You know, a nice breeze away from some of the things we generally talk about. But, you know, never let them say we don't do it all here at Ticklish Business. With that, please let me remind you if you enjoy our show, Please tell a friend about us. We would love all the help we can get with getting the word out. We are a female-run podcast concentrating on classic cinema. We think that we have a pretty fun and unique perspective on things. We certainly love watching and talking the movies that we watch and talk about. And any bit of help really can help. How's that? I'll use help twice there. So yeah, so spread the word. Give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. If you are so inclined, all of it does help a huge amount. As I mentioned, I'm Drea Clark, and I'm very happy to have two of my ticklish buddies with me today, so I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Samantha Ellis, and we also have... Kimberly Pierce. Yay! Indeed we do! Yes, Samantha, Kimberly, myself are taking on... Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator and Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, or How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love the Bomb. You know, I just felt like, why not, at this point in history, dig into something satirical? Because, you know, we live in ridiculous times. Just a little uh, breezy, not at all heady Sunday discussion. True, true. Yes, I know. Remember the days when I just got to talk about how hot I thought Christopher Plummer was? But yes, my brain does like to dig into these as well. And these are two movies, certainly, with a lot to dig into. As I mentioned, The Great Dictator by Charlie Chaplin, and when I say by, I mean thoroughly by, wrote, directed, starred in it, put up like $1.5 million of his own budget, and as many people said, also kind of put up the legacy of the tramp. This was a big gamble for him to take this film on because he was, and people forget this or may not realize it because, you know, time is a wobbly, timely, wimey thing, and he made The Great Dictator, which is a spoof on Adolf Hitler, literally between the two great world wars. Like, while Hitler was in power, gaining traction, and, you know, just authoring some true atrocities, Charlie Chaplin was putting a ton of money and time into something to take him down a peg and make this person who was climbing in sort of cultural and political mythos into the level of the absurd. And it is a wild to think about that now. Like, if you think about where we are politically, who is in charge, like, the idea of some amazing creator, like, <laughs> like what auteurs do we have anymore? Like, I don't see Wes Anderson making a big film about Putin. You know what I mean? It was a huge undertaking. And likewise, Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove was made digging into the Cold War and everything that, like, got mired up with Americans, which started in the sort of late 40s with the Un-American Activity Committee, and through all of the worries of bombs and mass bunker building and things. This was, like, a good decade and a half of true cultural worry, and he made it right there in the 1964, you know, sort of into it. But while it was still going on, and I think the the idea of just how significant the issues that were being skewered were for the audiences that were watching them or that the filmmakers would hope would watch them seems so fascinating and truly relevant to me. Did that stand out to either of you when you were watching, especially The Great Dictator, gives us those title cards right at the beginning of like, nudge, nudge, 
You guys remember the Great World Wars, right? This is right before the second one. Yeah, I love both of these movies. I've seen them both several times. I think really the, the line that goes through both of them into modern history for me is both Charlie Chaplin and Stanley Kubrick, for lack of a better phrase, had huge balls to do both of these movies when they did. Not only that, but I truly think going back and watching both of them, they're two of the most relevant films, not only for their time, but today. A lot of the lines, a lot of the dialogue, a lot of the themes that we see throughout both films still stand true. And they, they're both huge warnings about things that could happen politically and socially that could still very easily happen today. I mean, the whole point of Dr. Strangelove for me is let's maybe not blow each other up and we still have the ability to blow each other up. And there are still people that want to blow each other up that are in power in office today that maybe haven't watched this movie and maybe they should. Right, right. That's actually not for Dr. Strangelove, but weirdly the watch this movie. One of the things I realized or read this time about the great dictator was apparently Hitler himself watched The Great Dictator twice, and he watched it by himself, and Charlie Chaplin was like, I would love to know what he thought, as would we all, yeah. Kimberly, how about you? What was the, was there anything new in terms of thinking of what time these were made in sort of space and time? I'm definitely weaker at The Great Dictator. I, as I sat down to watch it this time, I could have sworn I'd watched this film, but I, I've admitted before, I think on the podcast, I'm not the strongest with Charlie Chaplin. And as I watched it, I had no memory of it. So I actually have no idea if I'd watched this film before. What I was absolutely, my struggles aside, the thought of this being released in 1940 absolutely bowled me over the fact that i mean this came what did i did i see march 1940 some of the release dates on this Mm -hmm. coming so a year and a half before the united states itself had entered the war and that shows you the foresight the awareness the the lack of awareness on part of the united states part because this is it's a full-on skewering. You can see it. You can, watching this with hindsight, you can completely see all of it, how this would have gone over in 1940. You can, it's, I completely agree with Samantha in that statement. He had the, the cojones to tackle that, to put that out there and just stake so much on this story. And watching it, I nothing but respect for him trying to tell that story, send that message, and that ending just... Oh, well, we'll work up to the ending, but I will say, like Samantha, I found rewatching both of these right now, oh, I wept at the end of The Great Dictator. Like, that whole speech, every word of Mm -hmm. it, other than I would amend it because he just says men a lot. Other than being like, okay, I get that. I mean, if I was writing a speech in 1940, it'd probably veer that way as well. But it was so poignant and hit so much. But yeah, the timing of it, to know how in the thick of it Chaplin was, when he was making this, it was with the assumption that this film wouldn't even be able to be seen in Great Britain because they had an appeasement with Germany like a wartime appeasement that they wouldn't be issuing sort of propaganda and all that. And yet the shining light for this movie is, oh, thankfully, by the time it actually came out, they were already at war with Germany, so they no longer had to adhere to that. Like, that is how in the thick of it. it it's just, it's to me, it's such a crazy thing to think about, but I really love how it fits into and blew up Chaplin's legacy, the idea of you know, a lot of these artists cared so much about, as, as many artists now, of course, still do, but to care so much and to be so worried about the state of the world and then to think, well, my medium is film, my genre is comedy, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to make a two-hour comedy where I'm literally playing for half of it, a, like, satirical version of Adolf Hitler, and I'm ridiculing him. And then I'm also going to bring in this other character that, like I said, mirrors, it was never sort of 
officially deemed like an extension of the Tramp, but certainly mirrors this persona that Chaplin had spent years cultivating and building affection from audiences for. So yes, anyone not familiar with The Great Dictator, like I said, it has a kind of the Prince and the Pauper structure to it. Chaplin plays two characters with identical mustaches that are, you know, one of them is a barber, a Jewish barber, significantly, and also interestingly, because Chaplin himself was not Jewish, although the German government and Hitler regularly called him that and complained about him for that reason, plays a, you know, we meet him as a doofy young soldier who goes into a coma for 20 years and wakes up under the reign of Adenoid Hinkle, and he also has knockoff versions of, oh, the big heavy hitters of Hitler's nightmare crew of associates. Garbage. Yeah. herring. Such hair. Yeah. There's so, so much attention here to everything. So we get all that, but we also get, because it is two hours, and because, you know, my guess, the idea of, well, I want audiences on my side, so they're getting the messaging out of this. So we also cast his then-wife, Paulette Goddard, as his love interest, and she is like this sparkling, effervescent joy on screen, and I appreciated so much how snappy and hands-on her character was. She is not a damsel in distress. She is taking things in her own hands, getting business done, which I was so grateful for. If I, you know, she's really the only woman of true note in this. And if she hadn't had that, what did you guys think? So like I said, like the structure, you're going back and forth and then you're towing such a fine line the whole time because you're getting a lot of the comedic moments. But it's kind of wild because when Chaplin, like you see him doing his things where he's like, ooh, he's. I've dropped my hat on the sidewalk. Oh, I must retrieve my hat and my cane. And then it's like funny and him doing the bobbing and the, you know, the kind of athletic physical comedy. And then you're like, oh, yeah, he's hiding from a stormtrooper. Like he's hiding from a member of the Gestapo. It gives this whole other layer to it. How did the comedy in The Great Dictator hit for you guys? Or were there any standout moments of it? I will admit, I had, this was almost two separate experiences for me. It felt, for me, this felt very long. It felt, for me, it felt very long. It felt more than it's, what, two hour and five minute runtime. And I've already said, I struggle a bit with Chaplin. I loved, I loved the comedy pieces and I loved the messaging, but blurring the two for me was kind of hard. It almost felt like it could have been and maybe should have been in my head two separate movies. And maybe, I don't, I don't know why, and I know I'm definitely in the minority in my feelings on this film. Because the comedy bits I absolutely loved. I think of that chase or the, where they're trying to get right after he's had Jew painted on his wall the first time. It's him and Goddard kind of are taking out the stormtroopers she's leaning out the window and kind of what beating them with frying pans and she keeps hitting you know she hits him and the i saw so much of the little tramp in there so much of that style of comedy and i absolutely adored those comedy sequences and it's just it felt like a lot of stuff kind of in but for me it felt like you know interesting thing filler interesting thing filler and it kind of it hurt the pacing for me a little bit How about you, Samantha? Yeah, I think for me, it's a little weird to watch some of the comedy in this when you think about the fact that Charlie Chaplin said after the fact, if I had known the actual truth and the actual atrocities committed against the Jews by Hitler during the time that I was making this, I would never have made it. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting to see him put these comedic blurbs into this film with this message, knowing that he or anybody else really had no idea about the truth behind like concentration camps and everything. All they knew is, you know, were the speeches that Adolf Hitler was putting out. They didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. So looking back on it and seeing that comedy, knowing that, if circumstances were different, this would not be a funny movie at all. 
So help me as the neophyte here. So he, that was so spot on with what's being heard. So he didn't know any of that because I figured he knew and was trying to put that on the screen. So to make people aware. Yeah. The persecution of Jews in, well, it's definitely in Germany, but like spreading, I think they were already um, being sort of captured and hounded in like Austria and things. I think that that was well known, but like as Samantha alluded to, it was the the full extent and certainly the like genocide happening right in once they're in the camps i think because they reference the concentration camps and everything in that yeah they, yes, i think it was more like a work camp, camp. Yeah. yeah they thought of it as more as a okay. general, like prison they didn't know about the gas chambers or anything like that until after the war was over it puts it's almost an uncomfortable spot for the comedy i kept going in my head to something like a Mel Brooks tackling these very, because Brooks has done similar things. He tackles similar subject matter and does it unflinchingly. And that's a very hard line to walk when it comes to comedy. And these are some of the biggest atrocities. And that could have, it felt strange for me to sit there and be enjoying parts of it. There was just something that didn't sit right with me during this. And the fact that, you know, you're bringing up Mel Brooks and Mel Brooks is Jewish, very Jewish. And he is willing to, you know, decades afterwards with something like the producer, look these atrocities mm-hmm. and this person in the face and make fun of them. But at this point, it's again, I feel like Charlie Chaplin had a lot of heart I feel like he, he had a lot of heart oh, very in much, all of yeah. his projects. And I don't think that if he knew the full extent, I, I mean, he said himself, he wouldn't have done it. And he doesn't seem like the type. But as a lot of people are doing with some of the political figures today, you see someone making an ass of themselves <laughs> on the world stage and they leave themselves open for ridicule, which I feel like this is like the 1940s version of that. And it's, it's definitely interesting to see. And for me, I have to admit my most recent watch of this film, I was very focused on Reginald Gardner because I'm so interested in him as a subject. I want to ideally write a book about him. So I was a lot of the comedic aspects that involve Reginald Gardner were the ones that had my most attention. And I think he's so good in this. And his whole chemistry with Charlie Chaplin, I think, is amazing, too. Is he the pilot in the beginning? He that, is. That would be why he looked familiar. Okay. Schultz, yeah, who, who ends up rising as a, in a political faction when, when Chaplin wakes back up again. I think that there's something really interesting, and certainly I'm also not Jewish, so there's probably, no, there's definitely people who could speak better to the idea both of empathy versus sympathy. But I do think that Chaplin, in terms of how he situated this and specifically playing a Jewish role when he had been condemned by the German government for being Jewish himself, rather than being like, oh, well, I'm not, but they're just fine. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, I, you know, I don't have anything against those people. They're fine. Instead of that, of just being like, oh, they're so fine. I'm happy to be one of them in this movie. I think there's an empathetic angle to that in terms of the story he was telling. And I think that you're so right. The When I bring up like how much it stands out to me when this film was made and this kind of bravery involved with that, it also involves the idea of how you would look at these things that frighten you. We're certainly, again, in the throes of that now. And apparently, you know, a genesis moment for the great dictator was Chaplin going to see a screening of Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will and in a theater of people who were horrified and afraid, rightfully so, watching this man in this propaganda be exalted and like thousands of people in March step doing that goose step, like that would be chilling. And Chaplin apparently just laughed throughout the whole thing. And there is such a universal and uh, not just universal, but long throughout time and space, the idea of bringing someone down a peg by finding them laughable instead of frightening and to just lean into that as an artist of, oh, not only. So for me, I do agree. It, and I, I, I also know that we sound like total artistic Philistines. Like it does play long, 
But I also felt like I understood why he was adding so many different shades of other things because it was all trying to balance out the weight and reality of what they were depicting. So for me, the the comedy that I'm thinking of, like one of the most, the moments that like blows my mind is we see Hinkle in his super elaborate, it's not even an office, like a palace office, and he's dreaming about how he wants to take over the world and how that like manifests is there's this big balloon globe. And there's like a five minute dance sequence, for lack of a better word, of Chaplin as Hinkle bouncing this globe in high into the air and posing with it. At one point he climbs on his desk and like bounces it lightly with his butt. There's just something there of you're taking Hinkle's and his dreams of domination and you're just like you are a child playing with the balloon and yet you you know you get this physical moment to watch and you get a little reprieve and i i just think he was taking such artful measures to trying to convey and put someone in perspective that seemed so huge and scary and daunting for other people like no this is the man who thinks of the world as a balloon he gets to play with and look at him bounce it on his butt Thinking about that in that way, that actually makes a lot of sense. I like your mention there of Triumph of the Will. I've seen that film once and it's been a number of years, but the image that still sticks with me, I believe, and I believe it's that that Riefenstahl film, Hitler gets on the plane and then he rises majestically into the air like a religious Christ-like figure. And I did not go there as I was watching this film last night. And th- like that was one example where it's kind of where I'm sitting there going, I okay, I see, I think I see what you're doing, but eh, I don't know if I'm feeling this. But hearing it compared that way, that's a very valid point. I think there are so many ways that you could interpret that scene. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think that Chaplin was definitely a master of the visual medium. And I think that really, for me, the comedy, not only for me, he was a master of blending comedy and drama. I think for this film in particular, as Dre mentioned, it needed the comedy. But then he also wanted to include the comedy because he was taking a really big risk, not just historically, he he was was going to piss off a lot of people with this film. But in addition to that, I think what people don't realize is this was his first talkie too. And nobody knew how that was going to play off. Nobody had really heard his voice before. And that's a whole additional risk in addition to all of the other risks that he was taking with this film. So you have this whole silent part that says so much and it's able to be interpreted in so many different ways. And I feel like that's a really iconic scene of the film. Yeah, I love that. I'm so glad you mentioned because think of how many artists in their career right now, silent artists, who all of their stress was just about moving to talkies. Like there was so much there about proving yourself, proving your worth, and then add being not just a performer, but a creator as well, a director and a writer, and then be like, oh, and speaking of the parallels, like, you know how I'm going to minimize my worry about one thing? I'm going to make a bigger worry about something else. He's like, I can't worry about that. I'm trying to take on Hitler. I, you know, I'm not going to stress about how my voice comes across, you guys. I'm dealing with a dictator. I think the really ironic thing is, looking back at the two most iconic scenes of this film, you have the silent scene of him dancing with this globe and the ending, which is probably the greatest speech in all of cinema, in my opinion. Most definitely. So for any film, for an actor to unleash their voice on the public for the first time, I don't think you could get much better than this. Oh, truly. And it's also interesting because... You know, the scene with the balloon that we see is him as Adenoid Hinkle. So it's as the, the Hitler representative. And yet it's maybe the scene that's most familiar to Chaplin fans, because that's the kind of stuff you've been watching him do, right? It's silent. He is doing something physical. There's kind of grace to it. There's comedy to it. It's all of this. And then when he is at the end and he does the speech, he does the speech as the barber pretending he's being Hinkle 
So there's all of these things of just playing with expectation and what you know of someone. So like the barber can only, aka Chaplin, can really find these words because he's pretending to be someone else. There's probably a smarter philosophical read of that that I don't yet have in me, but now I'll be thinking of it. I would love to, because I'd like to kind of cross-cut these films to compare them rather than just do one and then the other. So I'd love to talk about the comedy in Dr. Strangelove as well. I think there are a lot of parallels. You know, the, the, the concept of satire in general is about exposing or making light of something through comedy, something scary or something dark or something unexpected, and then making it just sort of absurdist enough that you can wrap your head around it or, you know, get on top of it. And Dr. Strangelove has absurdity down to a T. There's so much in this movie that you're like, what are you talking about? And so this one again, set in 1964, and it is. The concept that it's truly satirizing is not just the war machine in general, globally, although that's certainly part of it, of like how global leaders look at things, but they're really looking at this concept of mutually assured destruction, which was a big part of the Cold War and was a big part of the Atomic Age. Once you had a few superpowers that had their hands on these big-ass bombs, well, you know, it's a kind of philosophical mindset of what's the thing that's going to protect us is this mutually assured destruction which is they are not going to launch their bombs if we say we're not going to launch their bombs so like the only way we're safe is if we have all of the bombs and then we promise not to use them and there was literal all of these political tracks written about how you actually shouldn't do any planning other than that because then you're not counting on it being an actual thing. You had to put all your faith into this idea of mutual assuredness and not build a bunker or whatever, because then it's not mutually assured. It's just, it's such sort of crazy nonsense that I look at now and I'm like, why are we always so dumb? How fun. How fun for people. But in Dr. Strangelove, the idea here is, and the thing that I honestly found the most topical in rewatching this, What sets this all off is they're (laughs) they're on an army base and there is an officer who essentially loses his mind and decides that, and tell me if this is not the most modern news, you think what's going to do what to you or you think what political party is doing what? It's the most conspiracy theory nonsense. Oh, they're going to take our precious bodily fluids. And that, the bodily fluids... Like conspiracy that this madman has gone into and the huge literal global threat that his conspiracy sets off. I was like, oh yeah, okay, that one hits home. I was not expecting that, but I'm like, oh good lord. Some idiot, high-ranking idiot somewhere cracked it, has this stupid idea, and now they are like people just carrying bombs in their, the you know, the the bomber plane is now cut off communications wise it was just i was like oh good lord that's in like like that's one of the first things you find out that's before you even get to like the war room and stuff so i found that horrifying this time normally it's very funny to me watching this man spew about bodily fluids being contaminated and stolen but the comedy in this is much less physical and a lot more situational. I say that, I say there's a lot less physical, when one of the best pieces of physical comedy is, of course, Peter Sellers famously plays several roles in this. One of those roles is, it wasn't inspired by Kissinger, they said, but you, if you look at it, it's very Kissinger-esque, like, advisor. It's this older man in a wheelchair with a black leather glove on who keeps, like, the glove is possessed, or his hand is possessed, and he keeps going into the Nazi salute and calling the president mine fur. And I was like, oh, I forgot that direct tie back to good old great dictator. But to me, like the, the range of character Sellers gives us and then just the, it's more unlocking the absurdity for the comedy for this one. Like these different moments, like you get your classical, like, gentlemen, there's no arguing in the war room. Like, there's things like that that I'm like, oh, God. This movie is funny in a much more cerebral way, I guess. Did you guys, I mean, obviously, you know, we're all people who have probably seen this several times. What is it about the comedy in Dr. Strangelove that either hits or, or doesn't hit for you? 
I think the really funny thing about this and my whole experience with this film, this is another one I've seen a million times. I actually got the chance to see it in theaters when it was, they were doing like the TCM big screen classics. And I have introduced this movie to a lot of people. And the thing about Dr. Strangelove for me in my experience is people either love it or they hate it. And I don't want to sound pretentious when I say this, I think it's a difficult movie to wrap your head around. And a lot of the people that don't like it, it just kind of goes over their head. You have to really focus on what they're trying to say. And you don't have that with something like The Great Dictator, that it's all laid out in front of you with the physical comedy and everything. So this definitely has a lot of layers to it by comparison. But when you actually get the chance to go through those layers and appreciate it for what it is and what it's trying to say, that's when I think you really appreciate the movie. Interesting that you say it that way. I mean, because I seen this movie a number of times. My dad's a Peter Sellers fan. So I've had this movie playing and, you know, since I was a child, I had to grow into this film. I think it was in my last maybe two or three rewatches where I kind of went, I'm like, okay, so this is aside from Peter Sellers doing these amazing characters, which was always the film for me, kind of that last layer peeled away. That being said, I kind of come at these movies from... Like I said, I struggle with Chaplin. I struggled with The Great Dictator. I struggle with Kubrick as a whole. Kubrick is not a choice go-to filmmaker for me, but this is my absolute favorite Kubrick film, just in terms of the work that he does and those layers, the situational humor, everything blends for me so much better than it did. I mean, maybe I'd have to grow into The Great Dictator as well, but I got this film. Everything made sense as to what we were looking for and what we would be talking about here. So it just, this was an easier viewing for me. I love any time where Kubrick is the more accessible filmmaker. That's a fun, you know, you know, you have a fun blend of movies if that's the case. I agree with you. I am back and forth on Kubrick. I certainly have some of his dramas and especially later things. I'm like, okay, have you met a human person ever? And with Dr. Strangelove, that question doesn't matter because these people are nonsense machines. So it balances out and I kind of wish he'd played with more absurdity in his career. I think that to me, yeah, it it is a film that you need to be engaging with in a different kind of way. And when I'm, I mean, cerebral, genuinely, like there's a lot to sort of noodle about. And also story-wise, you're getting a very clear like, oh, okay, so it's a war movie and then it's doing this. and, And I think just the concept of absurdity is a more adult thing because children are naturally absurd. You know, like your brain has to get a little distance from living that absurdity to recognize it in motion. It all works for me. It's played so straight. You're not watching Airplane, right? It's not histrionic and ridiculous. It's everyone. It's George C. Scott. It is actors acting. And even all of Sellers' roles, including Dr. Strange Love with his Hitler glove, He plays those straight, as ridiculous as they are. I mean, as ridiculous, or as straight as you could. But I love thinking of the small comparison moments of, for me, the Hinkle bouncing a balloon of the world, and how that took this big, horrifying concept and whittled it down to this physical comedy moment. For me, in Dr. Strangelove, that is when they're basically showing the planes having sex while refueling. There's something about, because the main fear here is the bomb, right? So it's this thing of how do I take the story that I'm telling and the whatever and just show how do I loosen people's worries about it? How do I poke fun at it so that I can get the upper hand? And I think in that it's like, oh, well, I play a love song and then show planes fueling It's the most phallic-looking ridiculousness, and then I'm going to literally put an insane Texan man on a bomb, yee-hawing into space. Do you know what I mean? It's like, those are the, the things that are the least played, like an army movie, is Slim Pickens walloping like he's at a rodeo on top of a bomb, and I think that they're really artfully chosen. It's funny that you mentioned that specifically, because as you were talking about The Great Dictator and how they took this, you know, big, scary thing and made it into that 
funny physical comedy moment. That's exactly what I thought of when I thought of Dr. Strangelove. You know, this gigantic bomb that's going to end the whole world. Who cares? We're just going to have a cowboy writing on it and making it out to be not a big deal. And that's how we're going to end this movie. And I think that it's, there are so many comparisons we could draw between these films. And I think that's one of them for sure. The portion that speaks to me with Dr. Strangelove is the war room scenes. I mean, the first thing that comes straight to mind is that amazing bit of filmmaking and acting, gelling George C. Scott, you know, look at the big board, you know, he's throwing himself around the most undignified George C. Scott moment you have. And he wipes out, which I've heard was an unplanned thing. And he manages to not break character, springs to his feet and keeps going. And Kubrick was enough, you know, together enough as a filmmaker to let it roll and know, you know, a good thing when he uses it. And then Sellers as the president is to me such a genius genius character and that unseen bit the comedy that they meld with dimitri had these uh, these ongoing conversations with dimitri and him having to talk dimitri down and they're doing so much with so little it's a great way to describe this film it's a war film in a war that did not have much arm-in-arm combat. It was, this is putting the Cold War into a very interesting picture. And I think it's making it very digestible and it's showing the dents in the armor, for lack of a better word, in these political figures who I think at this point were starting to be seen as more human and we were starting to become aware. I mean, because this was what one of a handful of films, Seven Days in May, Advise and Consent. There was a few films like this at the time. And this made it more relatable, I would say, for Americans. It made it less scary. I think- yeah, I definitely oh, think go ahead. I compare it to Failsafe. I think Failsafe is like the unfunny Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> You're 100% like- right, yeah. Yeah, definitely the closest thing. And the thing is, you guys were talking about Kubrick and how accessible he is as a filmmaker and my two favorite Kubrick films are the ones where he has a story a really good story and someone like Peter Sellers just takes it and runs with it and I think that's definitely what happened with this film and my other favorite of his is Lolita and you also have Peter Sellers just totally taking his comedy and making it into something accessible I will forever love that they got to make Dr. Strangelove because of Lolita. And that there was the studio necessitated that sellers take on multiple roles because they had loved that in Lolita, a smaller version of it. And of course, he was also supposed to play Slim Pickens, but apparently it was like the accent he was having the biggest trouble with. He's already stretched. He's created and playing three major characters. So they brought in an actor. They brought in someone who basically was T.J. Kong or whatever. Like, Well, there's also the famous story that he supposedly broke his leg or faked breaking his leg in order to not play that character. And I truly think it's for the best. I think this would have been even more Peter Sellers' movie. But I feel like that out of the four would have been the least believable. Agreed. Especially since there was something about that fourth one being on the plane that was en route. It works because Sellers is interacting on ground and in the, you know, like his characters are in a same sort of sphere. There would have been something kind of off-putting, or maybe not, but to me, maybe that if he was on the plane and doing that, it would have felt like less of a threat because you're like, oh, Sellers is there too. That's never going to blow. You know what I mean? There's something of how we see movies and just sort of make assumptions. He would have quite literally been in too many places. (laughs) (laughs) You can't expect an actor to, that's just insane. Hindsight is 2020, but as I sit here, I can't see Sellers doing that. I cannot separate Slim Pickens from that part. That is just so ingrained in culture and it just he did so much in you know the little screen time he had that it's the perfect decision i also love hearing about how when slim pickens showed up on set everyone assumed he'd already gone through wardrobe and he's like no these are my clothes like he shows up in england and has on his cowboy boots and his fringe shirt So something I think that Samantha said that it ties into this bigger idea of satire as a way to get your head around something big and make it smaller. But also, I think that Dr. Strangelove 
is doing something that I think is important all the time, which is pointing out that our leaders are just people and they are fallible and probably idiots, a good percentage of them. Because if you look at a cross choice of any people, there's going to be a nice number of idiots in there. And why not with our leaders? And there's something about looking at the war room scenes and looking at all of those things and being like, oh, these are just people often given the leeway to make selfish choices. Because I think a lot of people feel really distanced from politics to a certain extent of like, eh, whatever I do is not going to matter. The people who are like doing that are like more knowledgeable or more important or more, you know, when in the fact of the matter, many of them are, are none of those things. And so I think that there's something here, again, like comparing to the great dictator of reminding people, like giving people the idea that Hitler was a figure that could be laughed at. And that, though certainly scary, because in The Great Dictator, you have those scenes where he, as Adenoid, is giving, like, these fake German speeches. And even the fake German, when you hear sauerkraut coming through or whatever, it's funny, but it's also still scary, because you've seen the footage of the real speeches. But it's, again, it's, it's bringing it down to earth, and I think in Dr. Strangelove, bringing it down to earth of, like, oh, at any link in this chain... If someone loses it, things could go wildly wrong. But also, the people who don't quote-unquote lose it that are still there are plenty laughable. Like, there's plenty of ridiculous decision-making. And I think there's something about making pol bringing politicians down to the level of the people rather than exalting them that is a lot of the heavy lifting of what these movies are doing. Speaking to Dr. Strangelove, is there really a quote-unquote good guy in this film these are so they're rich fascinating fun characters to watch but they're so inherently flawed whether it be george c scott and his secretary at the beginning sterling i i always use the wrong name the sterling hayden absolutely just bonkers i always want to call him sterling holloway <laughs> you know that would have been interesting that, that would have been a fascinating bit of casting and i mean you know the russians were bringing the russians down a peg with dimitri and even the guys on the plane they're doing their job but they're perfectly comfortable with the fact they're getting ready to drop a bomb there's really no solid good guy in this film and it exactly it humanizes every level of our government and it's scary but accessible all at once because yeah if you i completely agree dre you get to see these people with all their faults and failures and what they're willing to do and it's just a president who's worried about his pr numbers i think that to me one of the other most significant moments that i got in this that felt very real and felt like oh this is a takeaway, again, with the idea of how you think your leaders talk about you, is when that, again, another famous thing, when Turgid Sid says, Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks. And the idea of how these leaders in this room, A, are constantly centering themselves and everything, but just the flippant disregard for mass scale human life or the lives of both civilians and troops. Oh, uh, you know, there's going to be casualties. And that's something, you know, those are stories that you learn while you're watching war movies, certainly. But they're normally like, oh, if you think about it, there's a real lesson here of how disposable they think human. Whereas Dr. Strangelove is like, oh, no, you're not going to have to think about this one. I got a whole line right about it. Like, it's very quotable. You're not going to miss it. We don't even mind about 10 to 20 million lost. Tops. Like, you watch that scene and you know that there are people in the government just like that, that would behave the exact same way under those circumstances. And that's a scary thing, but they make it funny. And then in addition to that, I feel like the scene that really boils down the humanity of this film for me is the initial conversation between the president and Dimitri, because you have that moment of realization that's like, okay, the whole world could be ending in a matter of hours. And the only thing that's going to prevent that is this conversation. Hi, how's your mom doing? Um, by the way, I did this little thing. And you realize 
these are just people having a conversation and you try to relate it to today. You think about, wow, this could just boil down to a conversation between two people. It doesn't get more human than that. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree. And I think that they take on both these films in diminishing a lot of pedestal that you can put like our leaders on and things. There's a lot of work that goes into just Oh no, these are conversations that also probably could be done better most of the time. So one other thing in both of these films that I find really well utilized is, you know, like with The Great Dictator, we already mentioned Herring, that there's all of these characters that are specifically done as genuine one-on-one mockeries of people who were in Hitler's sort of administration. And what you learn about, like, so I just think of when Herring gets that medal and he has an army, or not an army jacket, but I'm not well versed in military terms. But if he has coat on, he literally has to turn him to find space to put another medal because it's so important to them to have like all of these medals and like that is what's appealing. Do you know what I mean? And in Strange Love, you know, you have a completely different kind of look at how, like, your military representative is, but it's equally absurd. When I'm thinking of it, I'm thinking of the broken down, your character screaming about bodily fluids. And there's such an interesting thing there because beyond just whatever they were trying to bring to light to the public on a political front, both of these are dealing in the world of the military. And that, I think, is, like, the biggest soft shoe that has to happen because there are a lot of people who have huge problems with the leaders of countries, but are typically more defensive about the military itself. Particularly in America, I think that's true often. And I think that both of these movies had to do an interesting soft shoe of showing, because the fact of the matter is your military is largely populated vastly by people who are not making any of these decisions, who are subject to the sort of results of those decisions. So I think it's part of why that tendency is. But for me, it manifests in, that's why I think The Great Dictator starts as early as it does in 1918 with Chaplin's character as a soldier, because I think it is trying to show the idea of sympathy towards the troops, because even in that, he's like following the orders of these officers and things. And then in Strange Love you're getting this idea of all of these people cavalierly arguing about what's going to happen to all of these people that include the troops. And I just like bringing that up because there's such a fine line between what criticisms people will make of the military construct and which ones seem out of bounds. Or do you mean like having to balance those things? This is a takedown of almost two separate sides of it. The Great Dictator is very much looking at it from the audience level. You're you're looking at the military that we see, the vision of leadership that that people in Germany saw, that people, you know, that we were looking at Hinkle, we're looking at the military, we see all the medals. Strange Love is looking at what we don't know. This is the side of the military that they don't want us to see. The, you know, George C. Scott's first scene, he's this military business is being done by his secretary who's lounging in her underwear while he's, you know, farting around in the bathroom. This is almost more frightening because no, this is what we're not supposed to see. And this is what we're not supposed to know is happening. And here's here it all is. Right. Like in The Great Dictator, we see that they're human in public. Like, yeah, that makes sense. Now we see that they're human in times of distress when it comes to Dr. Strangelove. And that's definitely more scary. I agree with you. I like that. That's a good summation. Okay, so I do want to touch on in both of these films, what equals like 18 hours of viewing. These are two long ass films. There's you get your secretary for a couple minutes in Strange Love, and we have Paulette Goddard, and that's kind of the full extent of female impact within these movies. And normally, I, you know, we are all women who would say, like, oh, do better, people these out. But for once, I'm going to say, yeah, I'm glad to not be shown as an absolute absurdist moron leader with selfishness. I mean, it would probably be more accurate if they were, but yeah, that was a tricky one. I do want to talk a little about Paulette Godard because I think 
the levels she's doing to like bring like humanity and levity to the great dictator do a lot to buoy that. I find her such a beautiful performer anyway. Was there anything that stood out to you guys, both about Paulette's performance in The Great Dictator and then the absence of women are throughout? Oh, I actually just want to give one other shout out to Chaplin for handling women. There's a whole dance scene in The Great Dictator where he is dancing with his fellow dictator's wife and she is a larger woman and it's a and I was braced I'm a bigger girl myself and I was like always like oh this is gonna be this thing of how horrible he has to dance with this like taller broader woman and instead the entirety the whole mechanism of why that scene is funny is because he looks like an idiot like he is the one because he's very small and overpowered by her and like so he's kind of flailing around, but it's not at her expense. And I was so grateful for that because I find myself being like, ugh, please don't. Please don't bring in one other woman in this freaking movie. One single other woman. And then have it be like a fat joke or something. And it wasn't. It ended up being funny and physical and totally different than that. As I sat here and watched these films, I didn't even really think of the gender issues going in. I mean, I will say I don't expect progressive female characters from Stanley Kubrick at all. And I mean, uh, Chaplin, Paulette Goddard was the best part. I liked the human aspects of that film probably the most of all. I loved just how bright and shining and effervescent her character was going on down to that final sequence. Kind of those two things made that movie for me in terms of what I appreciated. But the treatment of women on the whole did not, I didn't even go there into breaking it down as I was watching it. I didn't expect much. And, you know, you know, you're not going to get it in a political film in the 1960s. And I'd rather women not have to deal with what's going on in Dr. Strange Love. But I, I enjoyed from that aspect, I enjoyed The Great Dictator a lot more. Yeah, I definitely agree. It wasn't something that necessarily stared me in the face or occurred to me a whole lot while watching these films. But you do see that respect for women that Chapel had with that character in particular, especially because he named that character after his mom. You know, her name is Hannah. And you see, again, it, it breaks it down and makes it human. It's like, this could be any of our moms kind of thing. But for Dr. Strangelove, I just like to make myself feel better and think that there aren't women in that movie because women would not have dealt with any of that bullshit. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Oh, truly. When I think of, yeah. And again, I'm sure I'm just like allowing myself a little, just a little taste of delusion, but the conversations in the war room and how those would change if there was a gender parody at that table is very real to me. So yeah, I, I think I'm glad too, they didn't touch it. That's all. I'm, oh, yeah, please don't. You're going to like Meyer. That's then that's all we're going to hear about is like, oh, females wouldn't actually do that or what? Yes. No, please. I don't want to be included in this conversation or whatever the Taylor Swift of it is. I think, too, with the Pollock Goddard character, it kind of brings us to a good place to talk about the endings of these movies because they're enormously ideologically opposed to how they approach these endings. And so the great dictator, we mentioned it earlier, it's, you know, it's the scene of, we have the barber who comes onto stage dressed as Adenoid Hinkle. He addresses not only like the masses there and the troops, but he's being broadcast. His voice is going everywhere. And he gives the speech and he's making it up off the top of his head and it starts timidly. And then by the end, you can literally see the rivulets of sweat dripping down his face. He is talking with his full body and voice and soul, and he is just pleading for humanity and for democracy and for tolerance. And it's so beautiful, and there's so many snippets in that speech that I was like, oh, I want to share that. Oh, I want to share that bit. And then it keeps going. I found it so inspiring and the idea, again, of paying off this gamble that Chaplin was making and giving that speech. And he had like really labored over how to end this and end it appropriately. And he landed on the exact right note. And you go from there and then he his voice gets smaller and he literally addresses by name 
Hannah, this woman who's out there, but again, could be any woman, could be any mother, and gives like just the smaller personal just endeavor of hope to go on. And then we end this movie looking up on like this beautiful sunlit face of Paulette Goddard and like just this small sense of optimism that maybe people might get better, that we can see the good in things and push past it. Whereas Dr. Strangelove, which also apparently did a lot of back and forth with their ending, we're like, yeah, no, we're going to blow it all. We're blowing it all up. So we, you know, we drop the one bomb and then we have a bunch of, again, selfish leaders who are like, to the bunkers. And then they start yelling about, oh, that's where they want the women. Like, of how they should, for breeding purposes, bring 10 women for every man. Like, oh, great. And then, of course, your final, like, doomsday device. And then it's just explosion shot after explosion shot. So a very diametrically opposed ending of these two movies. How did they strike you guys? It's mankind is inherently good versus mankind is inherently evil great dictator. It's fascinating to watch that ending in hindsight because there is so much beauty and so much optimism, the pleading for people to be better and humanity is inherently good. This would still be a year and a half before the United States would even enter the war. There were so many more atrocities that were still going to happen before all of that was brought to a close. And so watching it from that perspective, it's like, wow, that's that's a bit dark, but in terms of just, it's such a beautiful moment. It's a truly beautiful moment in cinema, so genuine, so human. Chaplin's performance there is heart-wrenching, and it's probably my favorite moment of anything he's ever done. To, yeah, Dr. Strangelove taking the exact opposite perspective and... I've routinely said, you know, that movie's scary. And that's exactly what they're pointing to, that these idiots in government have the potential to blow us up. So at the same level, it's showing us just where Chaplin doesn't, you know, it's not where mankind is. It's where mankind could be. In Dr. Strangelove, we're seeing where mankind is. Yeah, I, I definitely agree on all counts. I, I'm a big fan of that last speech in The Great Dictator, I couldn't speak more highly of it. I think it's fantastic. But at the same time, I think the argument could be made that both endings are trying to appease audiences and give them some hope. And I'll explain why. I think the first one, I think The Great Dictator is more on the nose. You know, obviously, you walk out of that film thinking, everyone's going to care about each other a little more after they watch this. And there is some hope there and we'll get out of this. Okay. And then you've got Dr. Strangelove. Yes. All of these bombs are going off, but think about the choice of music. It's a very uplifting, a very precise and specific song to go with it. It's we'll meet again. Like, yes, the bombs are going off. Yes, the world is ending, but it'll be all right. Who cares? It is what it is kind of thing. So I think you could argue that both are uplifting. Yeah, see, I that is such a fascinatingly positive reading of that. When I hear we'll meet again, I think of death. I think of war. It's I, not, well, it's death, I think it's beautiful death. You know, it's it's beautiful death, but you don't know where you're going to meet again. <laughs> that song think, to me yeah. is couples leaving at the end of the war. To me, that's a tragic song. I very much I get what um, Samantha's saying in the sense that it is it's the most comedic ending. Oh, that true. There's very something true. there's and there's a, the lightness of that of oh well I guess we're all going to blow up so ha ha ha. Let's set it to music. Right. And I think that it's as reassuring as it could be given the circumstances. Like they're not going to change how it's going to end. I think the whole point of the film is to show that the whole world could end just like that because of the people in power. But considering those circumstances, we're going to try to make light of it as best we can somehow, some way, it's all going to be okay is how I read the song and the ending. Oh, it's all right there in the title. How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love the Bomb. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's a perfect point, too, that I didn't even think about until you just yeah. said that. Oh, that movie tells you all what's coming. Okay, so what are our final thoughts on these two? And, and just the idea of breaking down large socio-political issues through satire to make them either more manageable or put them in perspective. 
I feel like you you guys, if anyone listening, just know that they both gave me looks like I am a professor that just sent the uh, last question for an exam. I'll say for myself. That's a hard question. <laughs> oh, it is. And you have to answer it in 50 words or less. I know for me, I am grateful for art as a way to reason through all sorts of complex things. If it's either gaining empathy from a viewpoint that I was not previously familiar with, or just any kind of perspective shift that can allow me to get my head around any kind of concept. And for this, the perception shift is this idea of finding things to laugh about that knock down the importance of the things that are terrifying. Because there's a lot of things out of your hands in the world, and I would rather be able to go through it feeling like, okay, well, I know my place in it, and I have the ability to laugh at the things that scare me most as a, if it's a defense mechanism, a coping mechanism, whatnot. I like learning those things and having movies teach me that feels helpful and significant. For that, I really respond to satire as a way to sort of muddle my thoughts through deeper, darker subjects. I'll, I'll come at this from a, not quite such a heady perspective. I bow to your intellectualness on this. From a filmic perspective, these are definitely two watches which need to be seen at least once, especially if you haven't. I will say coming at The Great Dictator, somebody who the movie didn't 100% speak with, as I watched that, going down to the ending, I came out with nothing but respect for everything that Chaplin was able to do. And I was completely blown away from that film from a human historical perspective. I thought that was truly gorgeous. Everything about the storyline in there and the narrative and what Chaplin created, whether or not the comedy spoke to me or not. Dr. Strangelove, it's, it's an essential. I mean, it's like Kubrick or not. It's one of Kubrick to me, one of his most entertaining, one of his most accessible, one of his most interesting films. And this whole discussion has given me a completely new appreciation for it. I will say, I don't think, I don't know if I've ever came at these from a question of satire. So this has been a fascinating discussion. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think the thing that I always think about when I think about both of these films is how relevant they continue to be. I think that both of these films are films that we don't really put in front of the people in power today. And maybe we should. And I think if this was required viewing in order to take any office, I think that the world might be a very different place. I think it's something to think about. And both of these include discussions that we will continue to have. And the fact that both Chaplin and Kubrick, there was no way they could have known the lasting power of these films, but it's there. It's fully there and we fully continue to appreciate it and discuss it. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. It's my favorite thing about movies. You can talk about them forever. And there hasn't been a great political satire of the last couple of decades. You know, you have things like Wag the Dog or Bob Roberts, like things certainly trying to do some of that heavy lifting, but not to the kind of masterpiece level that I think that these two take on. So thank you guys for talking about these with me. I always love to hear how you talk about every movie. So I'm grateful. I would love if you could give us an idea of where can fans find you? Well, I am on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. You can find my blog at newsoutofaclassicfilmatic.com. And I am now on TikTok, too, at Classic Film Geek. You can find some old Hollywood content there. Personal accounts, you can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram, kind of in that order for the amount of times that I use it, at kpier 624 you can also find me over at the Ticklish Business website, journeysinclassicfilm.com. I think I've got a few videos set to run. We're doing thematic reviews. When this posts, I believe we're going to be halfway through, we're going to be in August, where I'll be looking at summer and beach party films, as well as lots of bonus content coming soon. Excellent. And I am at the Drea Clark on Twitter, and you can also listen to me on my contemporary film podcast called Maximum Film on the Maximum Fun Network. I like saying that like it's a Mountain Dew commercial, and it's extreme. All right, so you can find the podcast on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, and then 
I do encourage you to check out our website because Kimberly has some beautiful content going up there on the regular. And finally, I mentioned at the top if you could support us by telling a friend and leaving a nice review. But also, we would really love your support on Patreon if we are doing work that appeals to you. We have a lot of bonuses and exciting things, uh, bonus podcast pins, other kind of maybe live stuff that may or may not come up. But it is a great way to support us and a show that hopefully brings some delight to your world. So you can find that at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. When this posts, we're going to be right in the middle of our, we're still right in the middle of our true crime summer that we are doing over on Based on a True Podcast, which is available to Patreon subscribers. Any true crime fans out there, definitely pop by and take a look. We've looked at so far some films about the Black Dahlia, films about the Wonderland murder, and we have a sizable amount of Charles Manson films coming soon. So if that is up your alley, definitely pop over to Patreon and see what we're doing. Helter Skelter Summer. All right. Thank you all and have a ticklish day. 